Welcome to GovIT, a monthly podcast series from DLT where we discuss the next generation of public sector IT solutions with the technology innovators driving the change. I'm your host, Tom Temin. Each month, we explore a different technology, what it is, and how it can help public sector organizations achieve their modernization goals and accomplish their missions. In this episode, we're sitting down with Chris Roberts, the Federal Technology Director at Quest Public Sector, to talk about lessons learned from the four of the largest cybersecurity incidents of 2021. What were the four largest cyber incidents, in your opinion? Not five or six or three, but four. They're the top build ones that you heard of on CNBC and the top news programs. Um, and then there were smaller ones. So uh, I picked four that I think were impactful, both from a cybersecurity as well as society is concerned as well. So top of the list um, was the Colonial Pipeline attack, um, followed by Kaseya, um, by JBS, the meatpacking company, um, and SolarWinds, of course. And... An honorable mention would go to the Microsoft Exchange hack that was done by the Hafnian Group out of China. So those are the top four with an honorable mention. So I guess the Log4j doesn't rank because it wasn't actually attack, but it was simply a discovered exactly. vulnerability. Good observations. That's exactly why. Although that one was surprising because I don't think people ever expected static log files to be used as launch pads for executables. Maybe that's the novelty of it. Log4j, quite frankly, refers to a system module that's used by pretty much every application owner to both publish and subscribe to the logs in their system. And it's just something that we assume is going to be there. Uh, Syslog has been around since the start of Linux. So yeah, you're, that is not a typical attack vector, but it became one because the mechanism to access those logs was compromised and enable what we call a remote code execution vulnerability. All right, let's get back to the four big attacks that actually did happen that you named. Sure. Let's start with Colonial Pipeline. And what are the lessons? I'm not sure we've really hmm. digested everything there. So this one will be dissected for some time to come, quite frankly, um, because Colonial Pipeline wasn't just a ransomware attack. It was both ransomware and data exfiltration. So what that really means is that they dropped the payload, and then the payload was delivered probably through either a unsecured network port or a phishing attempt through an email, which is typically how most attacks actually get in. So contrary to popular belief, it's not some magical, mythical hacker at a keyboard, you know, squirreling their way into your organization. Typically, it's like the good old saying, a vampire doesn't have access to a victim unless you invite them into their home. And you literally invite ransomware into your organization. The double whammy on this one was that on the backside of the ransomware, while it was encrypting, it was also exfiltrating data. That means it was literally copying data from point A to point B. So that would be a server in the control domain of the attacker that launched the ransomware. That was the double whammy. Um, and it affected both IT systems, information technology systems, so your laptops, servers, et cetera, but also, in this case, also impacted operational technology. Operational technology is the, the infrastructure that controls valves and switches that literally have kinetic impact on the physical environment. That is, if you mess with a gas valve, bad things can happen. Same thing with a water valve or an electrical circuit. You have no idea what the consequences would be. So OT and IT impact was very significant with this. The other part of that is that it wasn't just, in JBS's case, a meatpacking plant where, yeah, you could feel the impact from the shelves at your local grocery store. It was supply chain for energy. Energy is a critical component of our economy. Energy is a $5 trillion a year business. Anything that impacts that supply chain is going to be felt. And we felt it across the eastern seaboard, all the way from the Gulf port, all the way up to the eastern seaboard, when you couldn't actually get heating oil or gasoline, which is very significant. 
And you point out something, it went by fast, but it's really significant. And that is, as it was encrypting, it was also exfiltrating. So that means the organization had to pay the ransom, and they did get their data back. But Mm -hmm. the bad guys also had the data. And that's kind of a different twist on what you think of as ransom payment. Absolutely. And it's, it's, it's something that we have to weigh because I think a lot of organizations face this crisis. And this is, this is true, in fact, that while it is, according to the FBI, illegal to pay a ransom, most organizations are doing that because they want their data back or they want the assurance that the data will not be released into the public domain. Now, grant you, if someone is a criminal organization or a nation state and they take the time to infect you with ransomware and steal your data, all of a sudden, you believe they're going to be honorable because you make a payment, for instance. In my humble opinion, if you were able to recover from a ransomware attack, for instance, and able to restore your networks to, from encrypted backups, I would not pay the ransom. I think this is when you go to your board and you go to your insurance carrier and say, look, we've lost our data, and that's it. I would not go through the trouble of paying the ransom because once you can unencrypt and restore your networks, that's the key thing is can I restore service to my consumers and constituents Quite frankly, because once you've been breached, you're, you've been breached. There's no pulling that horse back into the barn, so to speak. Some good lessons for going into 2022 to think twice about what you're willing to pay for. And, and that would certainly sharpen the game, I think, on making sure measures are in place. And moving on to the solar wind supply chain incident, maybe review again what that means, supply chain incident, and what are the lessons going into 22 there also? Yeah, so solar winds will be a case study um, kind of like... <laughs> Kind of like the um, Eastern Airlines versus Union is a case study in all negotiating classes to this day, is that SolarWinds wasn't just a hack. It was a supply chain attack. And what that really meant was that when software vendors assemble um, their, their software solutions, they're compiled from multiple code repositories. Some are in-house, some are outsourced. Some are from you know GitHub, which is owned by Microsoft at this point, for instance. Um, and there are other sources for code. The code is signed and delivered and signed with a PKI certificate. That's a public key infrastructure key. So I have a private key that's a public key. And you, when you handshake, for instance, you know exactly that I know Tom, you wrote the code and I know that it was valid and, and it's actually what it's supposed to be. In this scenario, what the attackers did was they inserted code into the bill process before the code was actually signed. So once again, A phishing attack probably yielded a credential that gave someone access to a system of a developer, whether they were on a private network, a personal network, for instance, or some other other network, they were able to access that developer's library, insert code into that library. When the developer then submitted all that code into his or her repository, it was then compiled or then assigned with the certificate and then delivered to SolarWinds. SolarWinds trusts the fact that the PKI certificate is valid, therefore included the code built the software and delivered it to their customers. And now we found out the result of that is that you now had malicious code infecting pretty much any SolarWinds customer that downloaded and installed the product. The, the lesson here really is, is that yes, public key infrastructure encryption works, for instance, but if I can get to something before it's encrypted, it's like a conversation on an encrypted network. We use WhatsApp and iMessage because they're encrypted end to end. But if I can eavesdrop through the window while you're having that conversation to the person at the other end, that's not encrypted. That's still unencrypted information. And that's what these attackers were able to do was get to the source before it was actually encrypted across the wire. And that's interesting because it means that what is in your software bill of materials might be transparent into what's in there. But that doesn't mean every piece of material in the bill is actually safe or trustworthy. 
absolutely. And it's it's a lesson we all have to learn is that just because something's encrypted doesn't mean you can trust it. Um, there are a lot of websites used by hackers that have HTTPS. And we've been taught to believe that that, oh, everything is great. It's perfect. No, anyone can create a secure web server. You have to pay attention. So if it's, if it's Bank of America, but instead of a K, there's a C, you really, as a consumer, have to pay attention to that. And unfortunately, it's buyer beware when it comes to in doing anything on the internet. Yeah, the last one I got was B-A-N-Q-U-E. I guess that's no good either for bank. No, it's not. <laughs> and let's get back to Log4j for a minute, because that sure. is still unraveling even as we speak. And again, we said that that was a surprising vector for launching executables, but also the sheer ubiquity of it is something I think that caught people by surprise because it's Wait, not simply an yeah. application software. There's good news and bad news here. So the good news is, is that this wasn't a malicious intent. For instance, this was just the way the system was architected, built and delivered. For instance, there was a design flaw. And this is why you have multiple eyes on open source projects. Now, Log4j isn't maintained by a big corporation. It's just a few people on the internet, on open source software, working on this code to keep it in production, for instance. So the first lesson is, is that more eyes have to be on software. There has to be more code checks, more QA, for instance, and larger organizations to look over and examine the code they're incorporating. There's, there's too much time being spent searching and incorporating code just because it's there. It's important to do QA on that particular code before it comes into your organization. The second part of that is that it's a common infrastructure. And that is, if something is common infrastructure, like for instance, you know, 110 volts running at 60 cycles, that's just common. If something broke that particular system, for instance, or that standard, we'd all be in a world of hurt. And that's the example we have from Log4j. Now, Log4j in itself isn't malicious, but how you can use it, to, for instance, so when I make a call to a system, for instance, that system gives me an, an API or an interface. Um, HTTP is a, it's a common interface for web, web connecting or web servers, for instance, or getting information back from a web server or handshake. What Log4j simply is, is like, as I am posting a log or pulling a log from a system, for instance, in that handshake, for instance, I can inject a piece of malicious code. And that code could not, might not be an actual log record. It'll be an actual string of text that forces either an RCE type of attack, remote code execution, for instance, or injects a, a link so a payload can be loaded at, at another point, for instance. Either case, it is a ubiquitous API that's used by all systems on the internet. The other side to this is that most consumers, no consumer actually can do a thing about it. It has to be your provider. So whoever is giving you your service services, whether it's an Amazon, a Microsoft, for instance, or whoever, they're the ones that actually have to go patch, fix, and apply this fix across the board. All right. And so that is still unraveling, as we said at the beginning here. And there's a need then to rely, as you say, on the provider. And mm -hmm. that makes it a little bit out of control for the agencies running all of these it, gives, it, it may give you the illusion that you're out of control, but there is something that every end user, every agency can actually do. So Log4j is actually, and this is, this, this is interesting because the thing that was attacked was the thing we actually use for something called observability or monitoring, log monitoring, typically that, that you know, syslogs, you know, Splunk, you know, all these different tools they, they've always done in time memoriam. We now have an opportunity to revisit the concept of observability, which means 
I want to understand the system parameters, not just as they are displayed to me or provided to me, but in advance of a particular issue, I want to be able to see exactly what are the vectors, what are the types of feeds that are coming off my applications, my systems and platforms that will indicate that it's a potential issue. And this comes back to the root cause of anybody that's actually doing system monitoring, for instance, observability. As a provider, I'm yes, I'm going to try and fix and provide the best level of service. But as an end user, for instance, using whether it's a storage as a service, or I'm using a VPN, for instance, or I'm using um, infrastructure as a service from, from Amazon, Microsoft, or Google, whoever, I want to have my own checks and balances to observe what they're delivering to me and validate that I'm getting exactly what it is I expect and or what I'm actually paying for, which is a secure platform to actually run my applications and services on. And before we wind up, let's talk about that Kaseya VSA ransomware attack. Just to remind us how that all worked. And again, what are the lessons learned here? So Kaseya is a piece of software that's used for virtual administration. So think of a data center, you have hundreds or, wow, in Google, Microsoft, for instance, you have thousands of servers in a data center. Um, Kaseya allows you to remotely administer a server from a single console, for instance. So think of now that console or that administrator account for that console being compromised. That is what you have with Kaseya. So for instance, instead of just being a simple server attack, that is one machine being um, compromised, you could potentially have hundreds or thousands of machines being compromised in a single attack. That's like everybody losing God mode to the, all their systems at the same time, which is really um, disturbing. So the vulnerabilities impacted what we call the global IT infrastructure management food chain, so to speak. And that means that you know it may not be your server in your data center, but it could be a server like Log4j that you're depending on to deliver on your services or a server that's part of what we call your technology stack. Whereas it may not be the important secret sauce to your delivery model, but it's a component. And if it breaks or if it's compromised, it could introduce the fact that someone could launch ransomware across your entire infrastructure, which would really be a disaster. The good thing about Kaseya is that it was detected early. Um, it, it was quickly able to be addressed, for instance, but it just goes to show you that systems need a lot of zero trust infrastructure architecture and deployed, for instance. So it's not just a, a one password, for instance, you have several points of protection across your infrastructure. It also means that when you trust someone else with keys to your kingdom, it's something that really has to be monitored. We talked about monitoring observability earlier. It also applies specifically also to anyone with elevated privileges across the network. Well, one thing we can tell then is 22 is going to look a lot like 21 when it comes to cyber and you just can't give up for a minute. Oh, look, I'll tell you this. There are some common things we all can do, especially agencies can do. Um, I call them my top four. It's one, um, security awareness training. We should be doing this par for the course. Every end user and every administration should understand basic security training. You need to implement a zero trust architecture without delay. And if you haven't done it yet, by God, at least at a minimum, introduce multi-factor authentication in your organization. Um, you need to be backing up and, re and, and back up and recovery for any on-prem or cloud application without fail. Never assume that your provider, don't assume Google, Microsoft, Amazon is going to be backing up your stuff. They're not. You have to do these things, for instance. Um, and then lastly is advanced endpoint protection. Um, Quest and a lot of our competitors, we provide our fellow agency customers, wow, for decades, solutions to address the resilience of their IT infrastructures, platform services, and applications. Take the time to have these simple four things done. I, I say simple, but they're just so top of mind for all the agencies to actually do. And awareness, training, zero trust, backup recovery, endpoint protection. It really is that simple. 
But if you start there, you're in a much better position to survive what's coming in the years to come. Chris Roberts is the Federal Technology Director for Quest Software. Thanks so much. Pleasure, Tom. Appreciate the time today. For more on cybersecurity and how Quest can simplify management for your organization, visit them at questpublicsector.com. You've been listening to GovIT from DLT. We'll be back soon with more public sector IT content. I'm Tom Temin.